0: reunion exodus chapter three verse six and matthew chapter twenty two verse thirty two was presented by carl kinbar on august seventh two thousand fifteen at gutenberg college's summer institute reunion tanakh and the gospel of matthew the copyright for this recording is held by gutenberg college inc two thousand fifteen gutenberg college is a non-profit organization and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. PDF notes accompany this talk. So, I am reuniting Exodus 3-6, or so it would appear, and Matthew 22:32. Actually, it's much more than Exodus three six. So I'm going to talk about how Matthew uses a passage in the Tanakh to convey his message in Matthew 22. I'm going to ignore the first part of that passage about the seven brothers because he's not using a scripture there. It's an argument. Although, as we discussed in our group, the, the Sadducees were there the only time they ever confronted Jesus on their own. They saw this opportunity to confront him because they had a little problem with the Pharisees about the resurrection, because the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. So they couldn't bring up, challenge Jesus on the resurrection when the Pharisees were there, because they'd be challenging the Pharisees. Why wouldn't they challenge the Pharisees? Because they were in league with each other against Jesus. So this is the nature of political coalition, that you have to agree to disagree on certain things, in order for the greater good of overcoming your enemy. Nothing will unite a group like a common enemy. So, But this was their chance, and they came, and they had... I imagine that this thing with the seven brothers was a common thing that they posed to people, and nobody had ever come up with a solution before. But to be frank, when Jesus says, you're mistaken, not understanding the Scriptures nor the power of God, from the resurrection they neither marry nor are given to marriage, but are like angels in heaven, where does he get that information? Where did Jesus get that information? How do he know that? Is there a scripture that says that? Well, maybe, actually, if we got this group working on it, we might find one. So I wouldn't say there isn't. But my only point about this is if I were a Sadducee, I would have something to say. Wait a minute. Come on. it's a very nice answer, except we don't acknowledge that what you say is being true in the so-called resurrection. And I point this out because the crowd is later astonished and the Sadducees are silenced. I don't think this argument really silenced them it wouldn't have silenced me, even though I'm not a Sadducee. But it's the second argument, the one that concerns the resurrection of the dead directly, that I'm concerned with here. And I'll just read that. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, They gathered together, presumably to plot against him. So what Jesus said astonished the crowd and silenced the Sadducees. Now, I have puzzled over this passage for 40 years. I don't know about you all, but I've met others among you who have said they hadn't been able to figure this out. And I was in exactly the same spot when I received the email inviting me to give this talk. And you know in your mind you're thinking a quick way out. I can have all sorts of ways of of, of getting out. But I said, no, there must be some rationale here because the Bible makes sense. But the Bible doesn't make sense just because it's the Bible speaking nonsense. It's because it actually does make sense. So I decided to accept the invitation with the proviso that I might not have anything to say when I began to delve into this, and I'm really glad I did. I'm glad I took the assignment because it was a wonderful experience of study. Now, this second part of Jesus' response where he quotes the scripture and interprets it or declares about it, takes about 10 seconds to read aloud. 10 seconds. How many people believe that he gave an argument, these words, in 10 seconds, astonished the crowd and silenced the Sadducees? The word actually means muzzled. How many believe that it took 10 seconds? Okay. Well, we're not voting, even though the one person disagrees. It could be. It could be 10 seconds. But I do not believe that that is the case. And if I had been a Sadducee, I would have said, God is simply identifying himself. He's not the God of some other nation or some other people. I am the God of your founding fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the way it read to me for 40 years. And I heard other explanations as well, but nothing that I believed would actually silence the Sadducees in that 10-second period of time, because the explanation of it took way, way longer than the 10 seconds. So let's approach it from a different angle. There is a difference between the incident that took place and Matthew's account of it. And what I mean is this. I do not believe, based on this and other accounts, that you're getting a reporting of an entire incident. And I don't believe it's really in Matthew's focus to simply report on what happened, because Matthew himself is writing to an audience, his first audience of presumably Jewish believers and some perhaps Jewish uh, non-believers, to speak directly to them in ways that they could understand that would be significant for them. And then, of course, beyond that audience, there is every audience that followed right up to the present day. So I decided to put myself in the position of Matthew's first audience. And being Jewish, by the way, did not really give me much of an advantage because this is like 2,000 years ago and 7,000 miles away and another time in another place. So being Jewish then was not exactly the same as being Jewish now. So I had to start from somewhere. And so I started with the culture of the time. And we've, I think, discussed this before, that Jews of the time were much familiar or maybe even experts in various portions of the Bible. My understanding of what was going on then is that Jews lived in Jewish communities, makes sense, and attended synagogue locally in their own local community with all, with their family and people they knew. And the Torah was read in a cycle of three years, Sabbath after Sabbath, and in other ways. So even if they never studied, even if they were not literate, they heard. And certain incidents, certain portions of the Torah stood out as being of particular importance. And one of them was certainly the Exodus and all of the events surrounding it, and God's covenant with Israel, the Jewish people. These were important things that were probably more interesting than genealogies, although they had their interest too, but you understand that things that really evoke something that resonate with the people are things that are important in their personal and communal history. And in this case, I think it was so for both of them, both personal and communal. So the Torah was read aloud and really shaped the way Jews would think about themselves, their identity and their community and their history. So by the time Jews reached their 20s, they were familiar with the Torah, even if they never studied it outside the synagogue, but only heard it read and then discussed briefly in what they called a drash in the synagogue. So I believe this familiarity enabled Matthew to take an excerpt from what Jesus taught, and as we've seen before, by that quote, refer to an entire passage. And so what I'll do is try to explain the passage and how that relates to Jesus' statement that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, the first thing to notice here is that Jesus is quoting a certain passage, and everybody knows where that is by now. Matthew doesn't tell us where it is, and, but Mark and Luke do. They say it's the passage about the bush, but Matthew's audience doesn't need to know that. Why? because they already knew where the passage was. Because it's the only passage in the entire Tanakh where the words the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob appear. It's the only place. Now, sometimes you find God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but only in this passage three times you find God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, specifying that God is the God of each of these individual fathers. So it's a very unique thing, and it would call to mind this passage. So, let's go to the passage. You need to go to Exodus chapter 3 and verse 1. Now, I'm going backwards, actually, the way we read it. And after I finish going backwards to find out the roots of this interpretation, then I'm going to briefly just reiterate and go forwards the way I think a Jew would read it and the way it would be presented to Jews. But we're going backwards because we read the Bible backwards, right? We're over here, and that's back in the past, and we kind of go back there. And it's possible to read it and get accustomed to reading it forwards or both ways and be used to reading it forward because in Jesus' day, in Matthew's day, in the days of all the writers of the the New Testament, that was their Bible. They didn't have any other way to read but to begin at the beginning with Genesis. And I really liked the way I'm so bad with names gave the, the presentation this morning, Ron, excuse me, because he read forward starting with Genesis the way to read but just presenting this backwards because this is the way that we do it so it begins in chapter 3 verse 1 Moses is pastoring the flock of Jethro his father-in-law the priest of Midian and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb the mountain of God and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush and he looked and behold the bush was burning with fire yet the bush was not consumed so Moses said I've got to turn aside now and see this marvelous sight why the bush is not burned up And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Yes, here I am. And he said, Do not come near. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you stand is holy ground. He said also, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses had his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So God is not only the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, but also of Moses' father which is interesting because I don't know, and those of you who are familiar with the chronology, but I'm not sure he ever met his father. Because remember, he was taken away as a child and raised in Pharaoh's court. And his father, I know, died in Egypt. He may have died before Moses ever went back there. So it's sort of a personal word. I'm not only the God of your founding fathers, these esteemed men, George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and those type people, but your actual immediate father. And later on, when he, the same formulas is repeated to Israel, it's the God of your fathers and of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's a personal word to each person that this God is the God who identifies himself with their own father, but also here of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So far, what do we see here about the resurrection? Anything explicit? How many of you read all the way through chapter 3 and maybe part of chapter 4? Did you find anything about the resurrection? Nothing. So what do you do now? Well, I got out a bright idea. I suddenly remembered what I knew for a long time. These chapter divisions are artificial. They didn't exist until 1,500 years after Matthew's time. And I began to go back in Exodus, and I saw, gee, Exodus 2 through 5 is a biography of Moses, starting with his birth all the way till his return to Egypt to lead the people out. And what happens with the burning bush We tend to view it more as God's intervention, and it is in a way, but in the context of the book, it's part of Moses' story. And all of that takes place on earth, except for the three verses at the end of chapter 2. That takes place above and was not observed by anyone. But we have it here in our book, starting in verse 23. It starts on earth and it goes above. Now it came about in the course of these many days that the king of Egypt died, And the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning and remembered his covenants with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And if your Bible doesn't read with Isaac and with Jacob, they've smoothed it over for you. Because the Hebrew clearly says he made his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob in the same way that he's the God of Abraham the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, individually made covenants with these men. And amazingly, this is the key to the teaching about the resurrection of the dead. But I still didn't know it when I was going backwards. So I asked the question about this. What exactly is it, what does it mean to remember his covenant with these three men? Well, I've been studying Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for months now for a book I'm writing but it still didn't ring a bell, so I decided to go back, and I found the scriptures that I have on the handout. These are God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, there are three main areas of promise. God promised that their descendants would be increased greatly. He promised that the Gentiles, the nations of the earth, would find their blessing in them, and also promised the land to the descendants. But I noticed that... God never promised Abraham that he himself, I shouldn't say never, but within this context, never promised Abraham that he would multiply. It's his descendants that would multiply. And the same with Isaac and Jacob. But when it came to the land, something different is found in the covenant. So Genesis promised Abraham in Genesis 13. God promised Abraham. The Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land you see I will give it to you and to your descendants forever now this is different from all the other promises this one is specifically to the descendants and to Abraham and continues saying I will make your descendants like the dust of the earth so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth so your descendants will be numbered so arise walk about through the land its length and breadth for I will give it to you So God promised Abraham, all the lands that you see, I will give to you and your descendants forever. So I'm wondering, gee, I can't remember, did he make the same promise to the other two? I thought if he didn't, I was in trouble. I would have stood up to say, I don't really have anything to say. But when I went forwards in time to Isaac, in Genesis 23, the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, do not go down to Egypt, stay in the land which I shall tell you, Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and bless you for to you and to your descendants I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham again to you singular and your descendants and finally God promised Jacob and behold this is in the dream of the ladder the Lord stood above the ladder and said I'm the Lord the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac the land on which you lie I will give it to you and to your descendants. So God made the same oath with slightly different wording to all three men. I will give the land to you individually and to your descendants. Not only to them, but their descendants. Not only their descendants, but to them. If to the one, then to the other. One promise with two objects. And God was about to bring a generation of descendants into the land. This is the covenant or part of the covenant he remembered when he heard Israel's groaning. He promised to bring them into the land... And this is what he was about to do, and this is what he did do, with some delay, as we know, going through the desert. But this was the promise that he remembered. But And his oath, his promise, would be kept in part in that initial entrance into the land. But Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived and died without actually receiving the land. They sojourned in the land, but they never received it. And it's very clear when you look at their stories that they... Even in the end, of course, they're not even in the land anymore. They're in Egypt, which led to the problems that they have here. They were only sojourners on the land that God had promised to them. So here is the problem and the solution. The problem is, how could God promise Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they would possess the land when they died without possessing the land? Either God makes vain oaths that either doesn't know he can't fulfill or just doesn't fulfill them, or didn't calculate correctly. Or he made an oath, and he has some other way than the usual way of giving a gift to somebody while they're alive. And that is by raising them from the dead. Because dead men do not receive gifts. It doesn't work that way. They must be alive. Now, this is not an explicit statement about the resurrection of the dead, but it's difficult to see how God can keep his oath without resurrecting the fathers and indeed subsequent generations that lived and died before this moment, in Exodus 2, without resurrecting them from the dead. So, how did Matthew use the Tanakh to represent this line of thought? we now go in a different direction, and just take a few minutes to do it. God spoke to Moses from the bush. This is an imaginary reconstruction of Matthew's thought. What Jesus said exactly I don't know, but I have some thoughts about it. So God spoke to Moses from the bush, saying, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. For God had heard Israel's groan and remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, to give the land to Israel, their descendants. Therefore, he would deliver Israel from Egypt and bring them into the land. But God did not promise to give the land only to the descendants, but first of all, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob themselves. That was, the, the, it was to you and your descendants. He said to Abraham, all the land that you see, I will give to you. He said to Isaac, to you, I will give all these lands. And he said to Jacob, the land on which you lie, I will give to you. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did not receive the land God promised them. They were sojourners all their days. But God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. If God gave the land to the descendants, how much more to the fathers to whom it was promised? If he delivered the descendants from slavery to give them the land, how much more will he raise Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from the dead to give them the land? And when the crowd heard it, Matthew was saying, they were astonished at his teaching, When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together to plot against him. So why was the crowd astonished? Because they'd been hearing these verses read periodically through their whole lives, and it never occurred to them that it said anything to say about resurrection. They were astonished. Why were the Sadducees silenced? What did they say? If you were a Pharisee, I mean, you know, we can always come up with something to justify what we believe, but it might take some time. They had just been embarrassed by Jesus turning their first argument on its head about the seven brothers. And now he gives an argument something like this, because that's what I believe the quote means, that he refers to a passage, a thought, line of thought. And they couldn't say that God makes vain oaths. They couldn't say, they didn't want to say that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were going to be raised from the dead. So what could they say without risking just complete embarrassment by Jesus who had just done the same thing to them? Now, somebody asked me, did the Sadducees change their mind? No. It's very difficult to get people with a committed theology to change their mind. Everybody except us, of course. So there's no record that they changed their mind. So here's a question. Why did Jesus use this scripture of all? to prove his point. Does anybody know that there are other scriptures in the Tanakh concerning the resurrection of the dead? Yes or no? There's a few nods, and I'll take even one as a sign that there must be. Okay. There are at least five, and they're found in the Prophets and the Writings, but the Sadducees did not count them to be scripture, we think, based on the best evidence. And so he chose a passage from the Torah, and since he knew it far better than they or we, he saw this basis for the resurrection of the dead. Also, he chose the passage from the Torah because the people would immediately grasp these realities because they knew these scriptures. They were not new to them. They were not going backwards to see it because they had been reading forwards through Genesis and the first chapters of Exodus for their lives, however long or short they were. They were reading and familiar with this passage. So this is not an argument that will convince somebody who doesn't believe in the resurrection. That's why it didn't convince the Pharisees, but it silenced them because... To work your way out of this argument does require a little bit of thinking through. This was not the purpose of God appearing to Moses in the burning bush, you understand. There's nothing in the passage about resurrection. There is, so, something about the covenant upon which the resurrection, the idea of the resurrection, is established by Jesus. So I think that this is what Matthew was conveying to his audience, as I think we've all seen, that the Uses of the Tanakh are not being used as proof texts. They signify a larger passage, a thought. We've seen all different types of usages of the Tanakh, but none that were just proof texts, and none that really stood on their own in Matthew without being misinterpreted. You needed the Tanakh, you needed the background, and Matthew relied on his audience knowledge of the Tanakh to do that. They may not all have been equally knowledgeable. I'm sure they weren't. But they had within them a people that were very familiar with the Torah and some of them that were very familiar with the rest of the Tanakh. So this is just simply an example of that. And I do believe it's something like what Jesus must have taught because it accounts for the different variables. There is a basis in it for the resurrection of the dead that is not based on sort of a deduction from the the name, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, or the God of Jacob. It accounts for the people's astonishment, and I believe it accounts for the Sadducees' silence. And that's all I have to say about it. So, we have some time for questions? Yeah. Because we may have some more questions about Zechariah. So, you mentioned that the first answer that Jesus gave, that there will not be marriage, doesn't really seem satisfying. I'm saying that by itself, I don't see why that would have might have astonished the crowd, but I don't know that why that would have silenced the Sadducees. Because I, I, if they don't believe that there is a resurrection, they're saying, yeah, in the resurrection, will they? They didn't believe in it, so anything he said about the resurrection, unless he founded it on scripture in some way, they weren't going to okay. be silenced by it. I think something that you said also made me think, so how does he know that actually marriage won't actually be in heaven? Or that's yet, the that's question I right? ask. Yeah. Well, don't ask me. (laughs) Okay. Well, there's more than two kinds of questions, but the two I'm most familiar with is the kind I know what answer I want to hear, and the other one is I have no idea. So that was one of the latter. I do want to give you one more scripture of interest. It's in Romans chapter 15. In the use of the word nations, can it mean two different groups of people at different times, or the word nations always refer to one group of people? It depends on the context. So could it be two different groups? In one context, it could be the Jews, and in another context, it could be the Gentile? Sometimes, apparently, Judah and Israel were referred to as peoples, the Zechariah passage. But I'm not talking about that. I'll leave that to someone else. I want to understand oh, the oh, word well, I nations. That. I haven't read that yet. You asked me the question for, before. I was I... looking for your information. <laughs> but clarify for me, what does nations mean when it's used in the Bible? I can figure I can tell you what it means in this passage and in most passages. Romans chapter 10. The question could be asked, if God made these promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, just even putting aside the descendants, when were they fulfilled? When were the promises kept, rather? Because I'm not aware of it. I don't know about it. So after all these thousands of years now and all the agony of the Jewish people, and I don't know what, exactly what Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are thinking at the moment, but I know that they have not yet been raised from the dead. And the promises have not been kept fully. And this is a passage, this is one of the most remarkable passages in the New Testament and little known. Messiah has become a servant to the Jews. It may say circumcision in your Bible, which is fine. It means the same thing. Oh, Romans, it's on the handout. It's the last one in the handout. Romans 15, verse 8, and the first part of verse 9. Messiah has become a servant to the Jews on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises to the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for, and for the nations to glorify God for His mercy. So this is in a passage having to do with the relationship between Jews and Gentiles at Rome who are having a hard time getting along with each other. And Paul has various bits of counsel for them, but actually at this point, he's saying, accept one another as Messiah has accepted you to the glory of God. And he goes right into this quote. In other words, accept each other for who you are. And sort of generically, but there's a relationship between the two that's exposed in this verse. And it says, Messiah has become, the Greek tense, I have intermediate Greek, so if anybody has advanced, they might trump me, but I don't think so, because the translations have this, has become a servant, it means, became in the past and is still. It's a past action with present implication, meaning, I think almost all the translations have it this way, that he is still, at that point in time when Paul is writing Romans, a servant to the Jews to confirm these promises, including the ones we were just talking about. And specifically, the promise concerning the nations finding their blessing. It's usually translated Gentiles there. But the word that's used for Gentiles in the New Testament, in the Greek word, is a translation of the Hebrew word, which is always translated as nations. So you have nations in the Tanakh, or Old Testament, and you have Gentiles in the New Testament. They're the same people can be a little bit confusing. It's actually confusing to Jews and Gentiles today in some circumstances. So in this case, the nations are the Gentiles. And most of the time, it's the nations other than Israel. But there is also the nation of Israel. So Israel is both a one of the nations and is separate from the other nations. So Messiah is going to remain a servant to the Jews until all the promises are fulfilled. And the particular one in mind here is the, the blessing that would come to the Gentiles, to the nations. But it also includes the other promises as well, because they're bound together in one covenant. So, no, these things have not been fulfilled, or kept, rather, but they will be one day. And uh, do we have any other questions? We, yeah, okay, sorry. You said the quote, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, in the Matthew passage was referring to resurrection. Do you see it playing the same role in the Exodus passage, or is it being used in a Um, separate way? I'm not saying it refers to resurrection in the Matthew passage. It's referring to the passage that deals with resurrection. It's a quote from a passage pointing to a passage in the same way that the other quotes we've seen refer back to somewhere in the Tanakh. So it's only when it's explained that it refers to it, but not in itself it doesn't refer to it, no. I see, okay. Then what role is it playing in the Exodus passage? It's identifying, this is the only, it's a rhetorical device. It's a way of saying in the most powerful way that God is the God of the living, not the dead. All the other similar passages just lose that power, the quotes rather. But the passage does not begin with it. And it says nothing about the resurrection until you get back to chapter 2 and you look at the covenant that was made with those three men. And then that explains, because the covenant was, included promises to them to inherit the land, be given the land, and yet they had died. How could they ever be given the land? And I think that's Jesus' logic, and that's what Matthew was saying, only by resurrection from the dead. Well, if you don't have any more questions, I'll ask one. I'll ask it of myself. It's okay. But I thought the blessings came to Gentiles through Abraham, not through all of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Nobody thought of that. Uh, I guess you just don't travel in the same circles I do. Because <laughs> so I get asked it all the time. Just one more passage, just to set it in context, just in case you ever hear this, which if you ever travel in my circles, you will. Romans chapter 4. Back in Genesis 12, God promised Abraham or Abram that all the families in the earth would find their blessing in him, personally. But in the covenant he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it doesn't say that. It says they would find their blessing in his descendants. So what's the difference between the two? In Romans chapter 4, it's really one of the most marvelous chapters in the New Testament, speaks about justification by faith. The heading here is justification by faith evidenced in the Old Testament. But really it, what it is, is justification by faith evidenced in Abraham. And the whole chapter is about Abraham believing in God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Verse 3. And it goes down to the blessings of the one whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose uh, sin the Lord will not take into account. And all this was through faith, not the works of the law. See, he was way before the law. All that happened before the Torah. And it was before he was circumcised. So it has nothing to do with that has nothing to do with anything that he did. So the question then is, in verse 18, In hope against hope he believed, in order that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. And without becoming weak in faith, he looked at his own body and said, this is not going to happen. not going to have descendants, because you know it happened. However, the chapter then speaks about, and goes into chapter 5, speaks about how one becomes a child or descendant of Abraham. How does one become a descendant of Abraham? By faith. That is, a Jew is a descendant according to bodily descent, but that's not what counts in this particular scheme. What counts over here is faith. And Jew or Gentile becomes a child of Abraham by faith. But you cannot become a child of Jacob by faith. It can't happen. Or a child of Isaac by faith. It doesn't work that way. You become a child of Abraham, but Jews are descendants of Isaac and Jacob as well. And that's the difference when you hear Jews are children of Abraham. Well, yeah, but so are a lot of other peoples on the earth. But we're children of Jacob, for better or worse, mind you. But still, that's what we are. And so the covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob, through which they and their descendants will possess the land of also, it's the same covenant through which the Gentiles will be blessed, but in a totally different way than the becoming a child of Abraham by faith. And... I don't have the time, but if you follow down Romans 15 after this, it explains the different ways in which the people of Israel and our history, the Jewish people, uh, serve as a blessing for and will serve as a blessing for the Gentiles to model what relationship with God ultimately is supposed to look like despite the many twists and turns and ups and downs that we've had. So we're meant to be a blessing to the Gentiles. So that, too, is something that Jesus has made himself a servant to the Jews to bring about, not for our sake alone, but for everybody's sake. So that was part of the covenant that God remembered in Exodus 2 as well.